have a seat, and as you do, let's continue praying that prayer. Father, we gather in your presence with your people by faith in you. Gather believing this is what you've called us to do. We gather to feast on your word. We gather to feast on your truth. And so, Lord, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word? Would you open our hearts to embrace the truth as you speak to us? Would you change us as you speak to us? Would you show us your glory? Show us your truth and sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. You're the one who has the words of everlasting life. Where else would we go? We come to you. We ask you to speak to us. We ask you to show us who you are. Show us your glory. Show us your everlasting love for us. And change us as we see it. Lord, I thank you for my friends who are gathered this morning. I know they could be doing a thousand other things. Lord, I pray you would bless us with your power and your presence as you speak your word to us. We humbly and joyfully anticipate what you will say and how you will change us. Speak, O Lord. We're listening. We pray that you would speak in Jesus, our Savior's great name. Amen and amen. All Scripture is breathed out by our sovereign God, and thus all Scripture is relevant and authoritative for our lives. Indeed, every part of the Bible is meant to teach and instruct us about the glory and majesty of our God. God's Word reveals God's character. God's Word reveals God's glory. God's Word reveals God. And that is true of the little book at the end of the Old Testament called Malachi. Malachi exists to reveal the splendor of our God. And that's the main reason I'm excited that we get to study it together as a church family because we are ever in need of beholding God's beauty and submitting to God's word. And so if you haven't already, go ahead and turn with me to the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. If you find the New Testament in the book of Matthew, just turn back a few pages and Malachi is there at the end of the Old Testament. Now, when you see the name of this book, you're going to be tempted to call it Malachi. But I assure you this prophet was not Italian. It is Malachi, which in Hebrew means my messenger. Malachi was a messenger of God, sent by God to deliver God's burden to God's people. And the voice of this prophet of God would be the last word from God that the people of God would hear for over 400 years until John the Baptist came to prepare the way to the Lord, for the Lord himself. The book of Malachi is the sixth shortest book of the Old Testament, just 55 total verses. We're going to study the book of Malachi over the next about five weeks, but let's begin by looking at just the first five verses of this prophet this morning. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord. 
Malachi says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of God. May God write its truth on our hearts. So in verse 1, Malachi identifies both the divine and human author of this book. It is the word of the Lord by Malachi. Now, outside of what we learn in this book, we know nothing else about the prophet Malachi. Nothing else. In fact, some have suggested that since Malachi means my messenger, that perhaps Malachi wasn't a person's name, but rather just a designation for some other prophet or even some have suggested for an angel. However, every other prophetic book in the Old Testament is identified by its author's name, and so I think we should expect this to be the case here. We're operating off the assumption that the prophet Malachi was a real person whom God burdened with a message to deliver to his people. That is the only thing Malachi wants us to know about him, that he has been burdened with the message of God Almighty. But from the content of the book itself, we learn a few things about when Malachi was speaking these words. Malachi spoke God's word to God's people, Israel, after they returned from Jude to Judea from the Babylonian exile. And so Malachi is a post-exilic prophet, which just means he prophesied after the exile. In fact, it seems like Malachi's prophecy is at least a hundred years after the people returned from Babylon to Judea because the temple had already been rebuilt when Malachi was prophesying. And so Malachi prophesied sometime after Haggai and Zechariah and probably sometime in the middle of Nehemiah's leadership. Most scholars say this book was written about 450 B.C., give or take a few decades Malachi prophesied in a time of great spiritual apathy. God's people were in a spiritual slump, if you will. They assumed that returning back to their homeland, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple of God, they assumed that that would usher in a glorious and visible and abundant blessings from God. But now... After it was completed, they are wondering, what is God up to? They are just going through the motions of worship without true heartfelt faith. They're doing the, the busyness of religion 
without passion and without faith. They doubted God and they wondered if His promises were really true. They were wondering whether God was still worth serving. They were wondering whether God had still chosen them and placed His love upon them. In other words, Malachi was written to a people much like us. We live in a day when it's easy to doubt God and question what He's up to. Is He really going to fulfill His promises? It's easy today to get busy doing the things of religion without passion and without faith in the Lord. It's easy to fall into the rut of just doing what we think God wants without being who God wants us to be. Sure, God's worked in the past, we know that, but sometimes we wonder where He is today. And this is where the people of Malachi were. The people in Malachi's day were. This is where the people of Israel were. And so Malachi's purpose is to rebuke God's people, to awaken them, to return to heartfelt devotion and worship. Malachi calls the sinfully foolish people to return to the faithful God. In fact, notice again how Malachi begins, how he introduces his message. Verse 1 again, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The word oracle is probably better captured by the word burden. The burden of the word of the Lord is what Malachi was delivering. This word that's translated oracle here, that's probably better translated burden, is used about 27 times in the Old Testament. And every time it's used, outside of the two times it's used in Proverbs, every other time it's used, it's used to refer to a message of judgment. Malachi has a burden from the Lord to proclaim this warning and this wake-up call to God's people. This was a weight on Malachi's shoulders that simply had to be delivered to God's people, whether they would listen or not. And notice carefully that Malachi calls this burden the word of the Lord. This is not Malachi's personal opinion. Malachi didn't come up with this message on his own. God spoke to this prophet, and this prophet then spoke God's word, God's burden to God's people. And it's important to notice. In fact, if you have some time later this afternoon, read through the entire book of Malachi. It doesn't take very long. And underline or circle every time that it says, says the Lord. I, I count it, and it's almost half of the 55 verses are punctuated with says the Lord or says the Lord of hosts. You see what Malachi does again and again and again is he makes crystal clear whose voice is primary in this burden that he is delivering. And the most important burden that Malachi delivers is God's plan for the coming of the Messiah. Here at the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi, again, just as all the other prophets had, points to that day when God would break his silence and send his son. 
Malachi tells the people that the day of the Lord is fast approaching. It is coming. In fact, in chapter 3, he says that God's messenger will come and prepare the way of the Lord. And after that messenger, the Lord himself will come to his temple. And we know that that's fulfilled in the coming of Jesus the Christ. In chapter 4, Malachi says, the great day of the Lord is coming, and on that day the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. Malachi points God's people to God's plan to fulfill His promises in the one who would bear their sin and purify their worship and heal their apathy. The book of Malachi, like all of Scripture, is ultimately about Jesus the Savior. The book of Malachi points to the glory and majesty of what Jesus would accomplish for his people. Now, Malachi's style is pretty unique. He uses questions to convey God's message. There are at least 23 questions in this short book. And so here's the sort of general pattern that we're going to see as we study the book of Malachi. God is going to make a claim. He's going to say something to his people. And then the people are going to respond by questioning God. They're going to respond by saying, how is that true, God? Why is that true? And then God is going to respond to the people's questioning with his gracious truth. And so we get to see the people's pride and rebellion on display throughout this book. The, the, the repeated questioning of God reveals this posture of pride and arrogance. This repeated questioning of God should remind us of our pride and our arrogance. They don't have the posture of humility and worship and teachability. They take on the role of the defense attorney defending their own righteousness before God. In fact, let me point out how they do this a little bit just so you can get a flavor for the back and forth we're going to see in this book. At least seven times the people respond to something God says to them by asking, how is that true? How can that be? And in every case they ask this how question, it represents sinful rebellion and questioning of God's goodness and grace. It's, it's a lack of submission. Let me point out just a few. The first instance, which we're going to look at in more detail in just a moment, is in chapter 1, verse 2. God declares his love for his people, and then they shamefully respond with this question, how have you loved us? It's as if they're saying, are you sure you love us, God? It doesn't look like it. The second instance is in chapter 1, verse 6. God tells the priest that they're despising his name. And listen, when God says you're despising his name, you're despising his name. This isn't like a, a parent and teenager kind of thing where the teenager is trying to make an argument back why what the parent said is not true. No, when God says you're despising his name, you're despising his name. But how do the people respond? How have we despised your name? And in his grace, God tells them exactly how they have despised his name. They've been offering lame and blind and crippled animals as offerings to God. They couldn't sell them in the market. And so what's the next best thing? Well, we'll just offer them to God instead of the pure and unblemished sacrifices that God deserves. They were going through the motions of worship without actually worshiping God. A final instance I'll mention here is in chapter 2, verse 17. 
Malachi says the people have wearied God, which is not an easy thing to do. You've wearied God is a serious judgment. So they say, Malachi says, you've wearied God, and they ask, who us? How have we wearied God? They knew exactly what they were doing. They were calling evil good and good evil. They were divorcing their wives and marrying idol worshipers. They were robbing God by withholding tithes and offerings that they should have joyfully given. They were so self-righteous that they think they're doing everything right even though God is in the process of rebuking them. They're so self-righteous that God comes to them and rebukes them for their sin, and they say, we're not doing that, God. Not us. I think one of the lessons from the book of Malachi and this, this question and answer, I think one of the lessons that we're to learn is that when God rebukes us for our sin and calls us out for our unrighteousness, our response should be humble repentance, not self-righteous questioning. We should remain teachable when God comes to us. When we begin to question God's word, his truth, his judgment of us, we know that we have slipped into a prideful, arrogant self-righteousness. One of the awesome things about the God of the Bible is that even as God rebukes his people, he at the same time reassures them of his love for them and his faithfulness to them. Listen, he rebukes us because he loves us. He disciplines us because he loves us. And that's how the book begins. The first thing God says through the prophet Malachi to his foolish people, chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, sinful, foolish wayward people. And so for the rest of our time this morning, let's meditate on this first passage of Malachi and what it teaches us about the overwhelming love of our God for his people. I want you to notice three aspects of God's love that are revealed here in verses two through five. Three aspects of the love of God. First, God's expressed love. God's expressed love for his people. I'm just amazed. This was the most amazing thing to me as I studied this week, this passage. Of all the ways that God could have began to speak to his foolish people, this is how he decides to begin. By expressing, declaring, proclaiming his love for them. Listen, God knew his people were going to question his love. He knew they were going to come back and say, how have you loved? You don't really love us, God. And yet he still declares his love to them. I have loved you is a breathtaking way for a holy and righteous God to address his sinful people. Here's yet another way that we see the truth. God is love. This is who he is. Everything he does is done in love for his people, and he expresses that love. This is the wonder of all wonders, that he declares that love. He doesn't just have the love and keep it to himself, but he, he says it. And the tense of the verb love here, in the perfect tense, it highlights the fact that he has always loved them. I have loved you, and I always will love you. He didn't just decide to love them today. 
He has loved them from the beginning, and he expresses, he declares that love for them. You see, when a man loves a woman, he cannot help but express that love. The man who sits back and says, oh, we've been married 30 years. She knows I love her. I don't have to say it. That man is missing an important, a key piece of love. Yes, we must demonstrate love by our actions, but love delights to express itself in words, in declarations of love. And in this declaration, God is expressing his eternal and sovereign love for his people. I have loved you, says the Lord. But the foolish people respond with the shameful questioning of God's love and pride. They ask, how have you loved us? It's as if they are responding to God. Where's the evidence of your love, God? What have you done for us lately? Why are we not prospering like you promised? You clearly don't love us, God. Well, God responds graciously by telling them how he's loved them. He loved them by choosing them to be his, which is the second aspect of God's love that we need to see here in God's word, God's electing love. First, God's expressed love, but secondly, what kind of love is it? It's an, it's an electing love for his people. And so here's where we really need to think deeply so that we can feel the wonder of what God is saying here to his prideful people. The people ask, how have you loved us? Right? They're looking for God to point to something sort of in their immediate realm and their circumstances. But what does God do instead? God gives them a bit of a history lesson here. He points them back to the book of Genesis and he says, remember the brothers Jacob and Esau? Remember that Jacob, your father, was the younger brother and Esau was the older brother? And yet I have loved Jacob but hated Esau. So what in the world is God saying to his people? Well, he is pointing them to the freeness of his love for them. God chose them. Out of all the peoples on the earth, Israel was God's treasured possession. He could have chosen Esau. After all, Esau was the older brother. However, before either of them did anything good or bad, before they were born, God elected Jacob, Israel, to be his covenant people. He unconditionally chose them for his purposes. This communicates God's eternal and free love for them. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, this is how God says it to his people who were questioning it back then. God says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. Why? Why was it this people that God chose? Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. If I was just looking at all the peoples, you would be the last one that I would choose. You were the smallest of them all. But verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It was, it was because he's keeping his promise. 
that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So why did God choose them? He says, I chose you because I chose you. I chose you because I love you. I love you because I love you, God says. It's my free and sovereign choice to choose whoever I want, and I chose you. Now, what does God mean when he says, Esau, I have hated? Well, we have to be careful here not to impose upon our God our culture's definition of hate we say we hate a lot of things, right? It's common to hear people with some annoyance or, or some wrong has been done to them. They declare their hatred, their personal hatred towards someone. Is that what God is saying? Does God hate like that? Well, the Bible does say that God hates people. There are other places where it says that he hates individuals. But God's hatred is a holy and just hatred. And specifically in this context... His hatred for Esau is the opposite of his love for his people. So God chose Jacob. That's covenantal language. God set his love on this people. He made them his people to be in relationship with him. And so he says, since I chose Jacob, but I rejected Esau. I elected Jacob, but I rejected Esau. God did not choose Esau to be his people. That's what he's saying. In his wisdom and sovereign counsel, he accepted Jacob by his grace, but he rejected Esau. That's what he means when he says, Esau, I have hated. I did not choose them, God says. And so I don't think we should read into this declaration of hatred some kind of irrational, personal animosity like we think of with hatred. God hates those he has not chosen. He has justly rejected them and not loved them with his electing love. Now listen, you got to understand this. Both Jacob and Esau deserve God's rejection. They deserve, just read the accounts in Genesis. In fact, if I was looking at these two brothers and I had to choose one of them based on their righteousness, based on their morality, it wouldn't be Jacob that I would choose. Jacob was a deceiver and a liar. He was all kinds of messed up. They both deserve God's rejection. Neither of them was worthy of his love. And so why did God love Jacob over Esau? God says... Because he decided to. And God can do whatever he pleases. In fact, in Romans 9, Landon read a little bit of it earlier in the service, Paul actually explains Malachi 1, 2, and 3 for us. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Romans 9. And let's just let's make sure that we see this explanation really clearly. I think this is actually self-explanatory. So I'm just going to read again that passage and then just a little bit more. So Romans 9... Beginning in verse 6, Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, that's Jacob and Esau's dad, though they were not yet born, 
and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And then Paul quotes Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then Paul asks, what shall we then say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Why? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. In other words, Paul says God is completely sovereign over who he decides to love with his electing love. Yes, there's a sense in which God loves everyone. Please hear that. Yes, there's a sense in which God loves everyone. Everyone is made in his image. They are his creation. Yet the Bible is clear that God does not love everyone in the same way. He loves his people with an electing, special love. And as Paul says, this should cause us to marvel if we are elected by God in Christ. This is one of the sweetest blessings of God that communicates his love. Election is a blessing we ought to often and regularly thank and praise him for. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 makes the point that God predestined us before the creation of the world. This is similar to what God is saying here in Malachi 1 about Jacob and Esau. When God chooses people, he doesn't do so based on anything about them. He doesn't like wait and see how they'll be useful to him before he chooses. He elects unconditionally before creation, before we do anything good or bad. And this should absolutely demolish all boasting in ourselves. This should absolutely demolish our boasting and our pride and our arrogance. Do you see what God is doing for his people in Malachi? His people pridefully question his love and he comes back to them and says, it's not because of anything in you that I chose you solely by my sovereign will that I chose you. My salvation, friends, my salvation, your salvation is not because of anything that we did or said. And so, Christian, rejoice in God's electing love for you. God chose you not based on anything about you. And if that's true, if that's true, that means there's nothing about you that could cause him to strip this election from you. And that's what God is saying to his people through Malachi. 
I chose you before you existed based solely on the purpose of my will. And if that's true, then you can have massive assurance that your election is as secure as God himself is faithful to his word. If God started the good work of choosing us, then he will certainly complete that work in us. And this is the point that God is making to his people after the exile. God has not forgotten his love for his people. The hundreds and hundreds of years, the thousands of years since he made the promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that hasn't caused his love to wane or to grow less. He chose Israel and he still chooses Israel. He's reminding his people of his faithfulness to them through all of these years and years and years. Now, I know this doesn't answer every question or solve every mystery about this truth. But friends, I think we have to be fine with embracing God's truth, even if we can't explain or understand every detail about it. God is God. We should expect there to be some mystery in his love, in his truth. But the point is, humble yourself to believe God's word. Don't, don't argue with God or sinfully question his truth. Marvel at the truth that God reveals. If this is true, this is amazing that God would choose us based on his own sovereign love. Marvel at his electing love for you if you are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, I pray that this would make you long to be part of this people who have who have God's love, His electing love set on them. May God open your eyes to these awesome truths. So we see God's expressed love. We see His electing love. But finally, notice God's enduring love. Number three, God's enduring love. Or, or Mike, you, can, you could write everlasting love there if you, would, if you like another E word. God's everlasting love or enduring love. And so God declares His love. The people question his love, and then God explains his love in terms of election and rejection. He loved them by choosing them, but he also says he loved them by rejecting their enemies forever. You see, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, were not friendly to Israel. There was some serious tension between these two nations. In fact, the Edomites had supported the Babylonians in sieging Jerusalem. They gloated over Jerusalem's demise. As the people of God were carried off in exile, the Edomites were rejoicing at it. They were traitors. They turned their back on their own family. And so in verse 3, God reminds the people what he's done for them in his love. He's laid waste to Edom's land. He's left Edom to jackals of the desert. Their sin was met with God's just judgments. And notice God says in verse 4, if Edom thinks that they're just going to rebuild, God is going to tear them down again. The people of God are looking over at Edom. Edom's rebuilding what had been ruined. And God says, they might be rebuilding, but I'm going to tear it all down again. Because God doesn't just reject sinful people in theory. He actually rejects them. In fact, I'm told that Edom is no more. Like no one today can trace their lineage back to the Edomites. Why? Because God wiped them all out and made them nothing because of their sin. This is what God is saying about his love. His love for his people is shown in his rejection of Esau and Esau's descendants. If the people of God want proof of God's love, 
They need only consider what God has done in rejecting the Edomites. And notice the word forever at the end of verse 4. God's love nor God's hatred is temporary or shallow. It will endure forever. And so God expresses his enduring love for his people. And this enduring forever love is meant to rebuke the people's shameful doubting of God's love. All of these years, all of these decades, all of these centuries of God's electing love is on display for his people to see. And yet they still doubt and they still question. And yet God's love remains. I have loved you, says the Lord, and I will never stop loving you, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of angel armies says, I will never stop loving you. And notice in verse 5, God says to his people, your own eyes will see this enduring love in such a way that you will declare, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. I don't know exactly what God is referring to that they will see with their own eyes, but I can't help but trace this promise in verse 5 to us sitting right here today. We're not in the land of Israel. We are beyond the border of Israel. And yet we declare today and every Sunday we gather, great is the Lord. The Lord has kept his promise and he has continued to display his love. He has continued to redeem his people in spite of our sinfulness and rebellion. He has chosen us to be his treasured possession and he has not allowed the gates of hell to prevail against his church. And so we declare great is the Lord in his expressed and electing and enduring love. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Truly, God's love never ends. It endures forever, and we are witnesses to this fact. God expresses his electing and enduring love for his chosen people. And if we are trusting in Jesus, if Jesus is our treasure, God has expressed his electing and enduring love for us. This word to his people through Malachi is his word to his people today. Friends, do you ever struggle with the question, does God really love me? Does God really love me? Like, I know he loves other people, but does he love me? It may not feel like he loves you. The circumstances of your life might be telling you that God doesn't love you. But if you're trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord, God has definitively proven his love for you. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God has demonstrated his love for you and that while you were sinfully foolish, Jesus died for you. You see, Jesus hanging on the cross is the ultimate expression of, I have loved you, says the Lord. Jesus is the ultimate display of the expressed, electing, enduring love for his chosen people. And so when we ask, how have you loved us, God? God in his grace points us to the Savior bearing our sin and absorbing the wrath we deserve. When we ask him, how have you loved us, God? It doesn't seem like you love us. He points to his son bearing our sin, absorbing the wrath that we deserve. And he says, look at my love for you. I've loved you says the Lord. I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've loved you with an electing love. 
And I've expressed that love to you in the most clear way that I possibly could. And so, church, let's bask in the amazing love of our God now. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, truly you are the God who loves his people. You have loved us and you will always love us in Christ. And so we thank you that we don't have to doubt nor question your love for us. And Lord, I pray that this message of your love, this this truth about your enduring and substantial love for your people, I pray that this would serve us in our darkest hours. Lord, I pray in a hospital bed and in a nursing home and standing over a grave, I pray that your enduring, everlasting, electing, express love would be our comfort, would be our joy, would be our hope, would be what sustains us in the midst of this dark and difficult world. God, remind us of your love as we look to the cross of Christ for all our hope and all our joy. Oh, God, set us free by your love to do all kinds of good deeds and good works in your name. Confirm these things in our hearts, Lord. Substantiate them in us. Build these categories in our souls that we would stand on this for the rest of our lives and never question your love for your people. God, if there's anyone in this room, and I know there are, who aren't trusting you, who are not clinging to Christ alone, I pray that you would open their eyes in this moment and they would see your love for them and they would come by faith and trust in Jesus. Do this good work for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise. And I pray you do it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's Let's celebrate this. Let's stand and sing, and and can it be?